Welcome, it's Jordan Rich, and this is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you on board. Creative people stepping up to the microphone to share ideas, stories, and inspiration. How do you contact the show? By email, it's jordan at chartproductions.com. My Twitter address is at jordanwbz, and on Facebook, it's Jordan Rich Show. Today's guest, Dr. Marty Grothy, a retired psychologist, management consultant, speaker, and author of a slew of great books on language and the interesting nature of English, with titles such as I Never Met a Four I Didn't Like, <clears throat> Oxymoronica, Metaphors Be With You, Viva La Repartee. Well, you might be getting the uh, picture. Marty, spelled M-A-R-D-Y, is a man of letters who loves to take apart words, phrases, quotations to see what makes them tick. You can find out all about his work at www.drmardymardy.com. Now it's his latest book, Deconstructing Trump, subtitled The Trump Phenomenon Through the Lens of Quotation History. Now, if history's greatest thinkers, writers, and political leaders were around today, what would they say about Donald Trump? Happily for us, they've said amazing things that could pertain to the subject at hand, often in prescient and compelling ways. Now, at the outset, let me remind you that I do not get into politics here on this podcast. That's the no-win scenario. But I do love Marty. I respect his scholarship and take on the subject. And let's face it, whether you're pro or anti-Trump, there has never been anyone in the office like him. With his tweets, his speeches, his press conferences, as far afield of anything we've ever been used to. So policy aside, I'm here with Dr. Marty Grothy, and he's going to help us examine the words and thoughts of the 45th president. And he's going to do so with some help from ghosts of the past. Dr. Marty, it's time to go on mic. Reunion time here on the program, on the podcast on Mike with Jordan Rich. I've been lucky enough to know this gentleman and interview him many, many times on the traditional airwaves, Dr. Marty Grothy. And he's written so many wonderful books about language. His latest, again, is called Deconstructing Trump. We'll get into the whole thing. But Marty, how have you been? Well, I've been fine, Jordan. It's great to chat with you again. You are a prolific wordsmith. You've been doing this a long time, and uh, it's nice to see that you're still at it and you haven't lost your fastball. Well, thanks. I've been collecting quotations for more than 50 years. It's probably getting closer to 60 now. And uh, over the years, I've come out with uh, seven quotation anthologies, which you and I have talked about, and, and I've now come out with my eighth. Mr. Bartlett has nothing on you. Let me just tell you that right now. Let me tell you that right now. So let's talk about deconstructing Trump. And and to preface, this is not going to be about policy or about politics, but about words. And your point of view here is that, uh, well, the subtitle says it all, the Trump phenomenon through the lens of quotation history. What What gave you the idea to take this approach? Well, first of all, when people ask me to describe the book in like a dozen words or less, uh, I said, well, you know, if I had to do it, I would say this. If history's greatest writers and thinkers were alive today, how would they describe Donald Trump? That's kind of the essence of it. Uh, the idea came to me um, about a month after uh, the uh, Republican candidate then for president, um, uh, Donald Trump, 
um, when he questioned John McCain's status as a war hero in that famous Iowa presidential caucus. You know, he called him a loser, and I don't like loser. You remember that, I right? I sure do, and I was I was very put off by that, no matter what. Well, we were, and, well, not only were you put off, I was put off. The entire audience of Republicans at that forum were put off. I mean, here was this guy who was kind of well-known for being an outrageous, almost cartoon-like character, you know, questioning, you know, the heroic status of a, of a GOP icon. At any rate, you know, the dust kind of settled after about a month, and I was uh, just re you know, as I do, I was reading and researching, and I, I came across a quotation in a brand new translation of a 1600 Molière play called Tartuffe, and I read these words. Those who have greatest cause for guilt and shame are quickest to besmirch a neighbor's name. I read that, <laughs> and my first thought was, holy cow, that sounds just like Donald Trump. And so that was the moment that this uh, book got born, by reading that one little passage in a translation uh, of a play that was written 350 years earlier. So I, at that point, I kind of said to myself, you know, I've got to be on the lookout for more quotations like this as time goes by. And, and, of course, this was occurring at a time when nobody gave Donald Trump a chance to win the election. Uh, I mean, all of the uh, I, I, you remember the uh, I think it was in January of the following year, 2016, when the National Review uh, came out with their famous never Trump issue. I mean, I think there were 19 uh, prominent uh, political conservatives, Mona Sharon and Eric Erickson and Thomas Sowell. Bill Crystal, so they all yeah. basically described uh, this this new candidate as a menace to American conservatism. How, how things have changed. What's interesting about the book, of course, is the quotes extend all the way back to the 1500s, 1600s to modern day. I used to think that, uh, oh, all the great quotes have been delivered, but you've discovered that there are quotes happening even today that are worth saving. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, going back to the ancient authors, I mean, if, if you were to hear a couple of guys talking in a bar and, and one of them over there, you know, you heard him say to his friend, you know, he thinks he knows all about things of uh, which he knows nothing about. Well, you know, he's, you know, you're listening to a guy describe kind of a blowhard. And, and so uh, we know these kinds of people. They've been around for centuries. But the first guy to ever make that kind of comment was a guy that we know by the name of Plato. Well, he was writing back in the 4th century B.C. And, and, and let me just, it's, just a, it's a teeny bit long. It's not really lengthy. But here's what Plato said in a book called Laws in, 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 in the 4th century B.C. He said, there is simple ignorance which is the source of lighter offenses, and double ignorance, which is accompanied by a conceit of wisdom. And he who is under the influence of double ignorance fancies that he knows all about matters of which he knows nothing. Well, you're certainly no. describing Trump, and again, I'm not going to take a political stance here, but you're describing one who's without a doubt a narcissist of the first order. Well, I mean, and again, I, I, you know, I don't mean this just to be about Donald Trump is a type. 
and he's a well-known type in political and world history, and, and his type has been described many, many, many times, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a combination of, of four or five factors. You know, one is vanity or narcissism. Uh, the other uh, is uh, is what what some people have called uh, arrogant ignorance, and, and and what I mean by that, and what I think the historians have meant by that, is these are people who really don't know that much, but they talk as if they know everything. I mean, we all remember when candidate Trump said, "I know more than the generals." Well, I mean, you know. I, when people heard that for the first time, you know, they were thinking, who is this clown who's, I mean, he dodged uh, 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 service in, in Vietnam with his bone spurs, and he's probably never read a book since he was in the third grade. Uh, that's fairly well documented, and yet he comes across as if he knows everything. Well, Plato was talking about this kind of person, and others throughout history have been talking about this kind of person as well. We're talking here about a media creation, and the media itself uh, fell into this constant coverage. There are some quotes in the book about journalism that I found interesting. Here's one uh, from Margaret Duras, or Marguerite Duras, journalism without a moral position is impossible. Every journalist is a moralist. So you look at not just Trump, but also that surrounding him, don't you? Oh, you know, there's no question about it. And and one of the things that was fascinating in my own journey here is that I was one of those, you know, millions and millions and millions of people that believed Donald Trump had absolutely no chance of becoming president. And then, of course, guess what? He did. And and uh, the, uh, it, uh, after my first shock, uh, you know, what happened for me is I began to sink into a little bit of a depression uh, because, uh, you know, I, I'm not a real partisan guy. Uh, you know, I mean, I registered for many years as an independent so I could decide to vote for the man rather than the party. But, you know, once uh, – well, the day after uh, uh, the uh, uh, election, I mean, we were all in a state of shock. And then, you know, you know that I have a weekly newsletter that's got about 10,000 subscribers around the world. The day after, I, I'm speechless. I'm, I'm, I'm dumbstruck. I'm, I, feel, I feel like a cloud has descended over my world. And one of my subscribers sent me a quotation from H.L. Mencken. Now, Mencken was this wonderful writer back in the 1920s and 30s. And, and in a 1920 column he wrote in the Baltimore Sun, Mencken said, on some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. Well, this was, you know, he couldn't have been thinking about Trump. He was writing in, in 1920. But for those of us who were shocked and disturbed by the election, you know, that those words kind of have a little bit of a, mm. of an, uh, strangely enough, an uplifting effect. You know, there, there was somebody, at least, who was kind of describing the reality that we were seeing, and inside we were kind of saying to ourselves, well, you know, maybe we're not so crazy at all to have this particular view of this particular candidate for president. Let's talk a little bit about the presidents who have preceded him and the wisdom and the warnings. Most impressive is George Washington. 
That's right. Uh, George Washington, when he retired after eight years, it was a 1896 farewell address. You know, said we should guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. And I thought about that quote a lot uh, during the campaign and and during the couple of first couple of years of the Trump presidency. But uh, do you remember just sometime? I think it was earlier this year when Trump went to speak at that CPAC conference and he came out on stage and he literally went up and hugged the flag. I seem to remember that image, yes. <laughs> well, that image was just broadcast all over the place, and uh, and I immediately said to myself, I've got to do an Instagram post of that picture with that George Washington quote, and I haven't yet put it up on my Instagram account, uh, which is at Deconstructing Trump, but believe me, uh, it's designed and it's ready to go, and it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, image. But talking about presidents, George, the the most powerful quotation from a former president that relates, in my opinion, to the current Trump era came from uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And in 1932, he was talking in an interview about the presidency. <clears throat> and he said the presidency is not merely an administrative office. He said it is preeminently a place of moral leadership. And then he went on to say all of our great presidents were leaders of thought at times when certain ideas in the life of the nation had to be clarified. And, and, and his observation in a nutshell signifies how greatly uh, the office of the U.S. presidency has declined. If you took, if you took a random sampling uh, of, of American citizens that even includes uh, ardent Trump supporters and said, do you regard Donald Trump as a leader of thought, and do you think his presidency is a place of moral leadership? I mean, I don't know what the final results of that survey would be, but I, I've got to believe that you know, less than one in 10 people, think about that, one in 10, maybe five out of 100, maybe two out of 100 people would say, yes, I think the Trump presidency is a place of moral leadership. It's really, it's really sad, and it's very, very tragic in some ways. Let's get back to the power of quotation, because in Deconstructing Trump, obviously, there are hundreds of quotations that you've amassed that focus on this issue. But it's a shame, I think, that more and more schoolchildren aren't memorizing even the simplest of quotations, because they really, first of all, they're fun to bring up at a bar. <laughs> oh, they are. And, and second of all, there's a lot of wisdom in few words. Talk about the power of these, as you see. Well, th this is such an interesting point. Point, because when we say that somebody is a quotation lover, that's actually a little bit of a misnomer. Quotation lovers are really interested not in quotations per se, but in the ideas behind them. And, you know, and all a quotation is, if, if you will, is a wonderful, big, powerful idea kind of nicely gift-wrapped in, in, in attractive words. And, 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 and so what happens when we read, uh, our thinking gets stimulated by these wonderful thoughts from, from great thinkers. I mean, just on this, uh, this theme of the presidency being a place of moral leadership, 
um, um, one of my very favorite quotations, I wasn't aware of it until I was doing my research, uh, but I immediately resonated to it immediately after I found it, came from the French writer George Sand. And, of course, we know that George Sand is a woman, not a man. But, you know, in an 1850-something letter to a friend, she said, we all run the risk of declining if somebody does not rise to tell us that life is on the heights and not in the cesspools. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln talked about this notion that we should listen to our better angels. Um, But what's happened now is that there's been a you know, there's been a decline uh, in our country, uh, and, 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 and the decline comes from people at the very top uh, who are basically not asking us to reach for the stars, but they're speaking sometimes to our, our darker and, and more disturbing, you know, tendencies. I mean, I remember when David Duke, during the election, the former head of the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan in America, said, if you are a true American, you've got to vote for Donald Trump. And I thought to myself, you know, when you've got the former head of the Ku Klux Klan saying that you must vote for this person, you'd think that that person would get on his Mm. Twitter account immediately and say, I completely distance myself from these remarks. Well, that didn't happen. So, you know, this notion that, you know, we've kind of descended a little bit closer to the cesspools uh, rather than uh, uh, sort of aspiring to the heights has kind of become disturbingly true. And unfortunately, it's happening from other sides as well. I mean, the image of the Trump head severed, uh, held by Kathy Griffin. I mean, there have been a lot of things that have sort of unraveled, and and some of the darker stuff has come out in this era. I mean, it's uh, certainly a, a tough time to be to be civil, apparently, but with some of these people. Well, you're talking about incivility is really an important point, and and I totally agree with you. Is the you know the the, the incivil, uncivil, rude, insulting, crude, abominable behavior now shows up routinely, you know, on the left and the right. And and that that image of uh, that you're describing, uh, you know, of the severed head, which I, I just could not believe that. But but um, uh, in, in my research, uh, I got fascinated by this whole topic of civility versus incivility, because, you know, there's never been a candidate for president that engaged in this kind of name-calling, you know, that we saw disparaging his opponents. I mean, it happened early on in the Republican primary with, you know, little Marco and Lion Ted, and, and then it got transferred to Lion. No president, uh, no, no, no presidential aspirant has ever talked right. this way right. about opponents. And, and, and I, at the time it was happening, I, I just said to myself, oh, my goodness, where is this going to end? And that about that time, I found a quote by the famous English lexicographer Samuel Johnson, who said, when once the forms of civility are violated, there remains little hope of return to kindness or decency. So, I mean, we can't blame Donald Trump for the decline 
and civility in the American uh, culture. It, it started happening well before he uh, <clears throat> decided to run for president, but he certainly hasn't helped matters, and there is no question that his behavior over the last several years has contributed uh, to a major decline in civility in American public discourse. Before we wrap up here and promote the current book, the best title in the last 50 years has to be Metaphors Be With You in 2016, which, which I don't believe you and I talked about on the air at the time, but I'd love to come back and just tweak that a little bit because I love metaphors. I often screw up my metaphor references, <laughs> but I love them. And uh, just tell the audience a little bit about that particular book on metaphor. Well, uh, thank you for that. Um, I don't think we have talked about that book. Uh, I, I love metaphors as well. I love metaphorical language. Whenever, pe you know, um, uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, once said, words are the most powerful drug used by mankind. Now, what does that mean and why is that a metaphor? Well, when you speak metaphorically, you take one thing, in this case, words, and you relate it to something very, very different. In his case, drugs. Now, now, literally, words are not a drug. Uh, so, but he's saying words are like a drug. Now, if he said words are like a drug, that would be a simile. He said <laughs> words are a drug, the most powerful drug used by mankind. So when we speak metaphorically, we make a connection between one thing and another, often because we're trying to really drive home a point about that original thing that we could almost do in no other way. Well, you do it better than anyone. You explain it better than anyone, and you give example after example after example. And the quotations in Deconstructing Trump, the new book, can actually be applied to a lot of issues and people in our lives uh, on, a, on a lot of levels, not just the national level. So congratulations, Marty. Keep up the great work, my friend. You're, you're still at it. Good oh, for you. Thank you very much, Jordan. And I'm just delighted for your interest, and it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience chatting with you again. On Mike with Jordan Rich is produced at Chart Productions in Boston with technical assistance from Dan Tebow at Fast Twitch Media. Always appreciate those of you who subscribe regularly and download this podcast. And if you get a chance to review the podcast on Apple, I'd certainly appreciate that as well. Looking forward to our next get-together for great conversation. This is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do some good. Take care.